We're back. Can you believe it? Welcome along to Series 5 of the High Performance Podcast. We've missed you while you've been away for the past few weeks, but welcome to a brand new series, a whole range of amazing new guests. And you may already know that we've actually launched something called the High Performance Circle. This is us creating a community of high performance podcast listeners and people with a high performance mindset. And on there, we're giving you exclusive high performance podcast episodes that you won't hear elsewhere, short boosts of inspiration, keynote speeches, newsletters, and so much more. So before we get into this week's first episode of the new series, I would love you just to go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, enter your email address, and you will receive an invite for the High Performance Circle. That's thehighperformancepodcast.com. Enter your email address, receive your invite. You'll then be in the circle and you will be open to a whole new world of exclusive and brilliant content from the team behind the High Performance Podcast. Right, here's what's in store today. There's no room for, for egos here. You know, it's, it, it's all about team. It's all about working for each other. And, and not just for as an individual and and I think that that's made this team it's one of the strengths that it's had is it's it's that sense of team that sense of collectiveness that you know we're all judged every two weeks on a Sunday afternoon and every department needs to be working in harmony to for the car to to achieve that finish line in first position I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to one of the most elite environments in the UK. Look, from the outside, the building we're in looks like another industrial unit on another sprawling industrial estate. Yet inside, the longest-running team principal in Formula One is driving on a team who are relentlessly high-performance. And this is the stat that gets me right. 307 races, 187 podiums, which means that this Formula One team in one of the world's most competitive environments, have sprayed champagne at over 60% of the races they've competed in, which is stunning. So where does their CEO's drive come from? How did he convince the team to make him the youngest ever Formula One boss at the time? And 16 years later, what has he learned from relentless commitment to winning that can enrich your life? Um, It's a pleasure to welcome one of the most impressive individuals I've ever seen operating or had the pleasure to work with, Christian Horner, OBE. Thanks for being with us. Great to see you. Uh, long time since we shared a Formula One paddock, but I saw even then the high performance approach that you take to life. So could you explain to us what high performance represents to you? High performance is everything that we do. Obviously, ultimately, it is the car, but you know, generating and, and focusing your performance into all aspects that contribute that is everything that we're we're about. So it's getting the most out of people, being the best that you can be, focusing on your, you know, understanding where your weaknesses are, understanding where your strengths are. And uh, yeah, it just encompasses all aspects of competition and, and life in many respects. So where do you focus more than in this team? Do you focus more on your strengths or do you focus more on your weaknesses? I suppose we, um, you know, you have to focus on your weaknesses because I think that by understanding where your weaknesses are, it only adds to your strengths. And I think even with a race that you win, there's things that you can do better. There's always something that you can improve. You're always learning. Life is a journey at the end of the day. And and a motor race is a two-hour snapshot of that. And there's always something that you can learn, that you can improve, that you can do, you can do better. And then you carry that knowledge, that that know-how, you know, into the into the future events. 
So can I take you, like that phrase you use there, Christian, that life is a journey. Can I take you back to the journey that you went on before yeah. you joined Formula One? Because reading your biography was really fascinating. You seem to throw yourself into a, a moving towards a goal and then work out how to get there yeah. uh, along the way. So you had almost that burn the boats attitude of, you know, I'll commit to something and then I'll find out a way of doing it, whether it was yeah. you going into Formula 3000 or becoming yeah. a driver yourself. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit more about that approach to life? Well, I, I started, you know, my, uh, my journey, as it were, with a, with a desire to be a racing driver. I was always fascinated by speed, you know, speed and, and, and whether that was making a go-kart to go down the hill at the back of the house whether it was one of those evil can evil, you know, wind up toys that, that you build a ramp and see how far he could jump. It was how many bricks could you build a ramp and how far could you jump on your own BMX? So speed was always something that I was, I was fascinated by. Then I discovered the world of, of, of kart racing, of go-kart racing. And, and it was my mum's fault because I plagued and plagued and plagued, you know, my father to get a motorized go-kart that was to drive around the garden. And I think he'd had a bit of enough of me going on and on about it. And it was it was my 12th birthday was coming up. And there was a local newspaper in, in Leamington Spa. And my mum found in one of the adverts at the back of it an, an old go-kart that was for sale. It was about 40 quid or something. And she bought it for me for my birthday. And it, it turned out that this cart was an, a, an actual racing cart. So when we put it on the ground with the idea of driving it on the grass your bum was on the floor. So, so suddenly it was like, well, we can't drive around a garden or a field or something like that. So um, we discovered there was a track up at uh, just outside Banbury and at Shennington and went up there and took this, this contraption up there and suddenly discovered that there was this whole world of, of car where you could race these things. And, and, and what we'd actually bought was a complete piece of shit, but it, it ignited a passion. And, you know, suddenly that's life. My school career went out the window at that point. It was all about going what racing. What was it that it gave you? So like when you describe being immersed in that Bambi racing track, what was it that it sparked in you? I don't know. It was just being at one with a machine and going as fast as you can, as fast as you dare, you know, and, and then suddenly you're racing against other kids as well and, and you're know, trying to catch, trying to overtake. It was just that, that adrenaline buzz of of speed and then you know my childhood was then obsessed with going racing and and polishing the go-kart in the garage and trying to understand I, you know i slept with an engine in my bedroom for about 12 months um which absolutely stank and i shared a bedroom with my my younger brother at the time and um so he wasn't very happy about it but yeah it just ignited a passion in me and and all i wanted to do at that point was you know be a driver so one of the questions that Jake and I often ask our interviewees is the question of what goes from your childhood would we still see rattling around your adult body? So now that you're a team principal yeah. and hugely successful, what goes from that 12-year-old you that first got that go-kart is still being applied here now at Red Bull? Still that passion, still that buzz. You know, when the lights come on on a Sunday afternoon, I still get the same energy as when the flag dropped when I was... 12 there wasn't lights in those days so it's still that adrenaline rush that you get from these high performing cars and and of course you know the route that i went on being focused on being a driver that detoured further down the down the line but i i think you, you you've got to have that have that passion and some people you know have it for for different sports different things for me it was about it was the smell of the engines. It was the noise. It was the energy that they create. And that was like, wow, I want to, I want to be part of this. What about understanding then the work ethic that goes with that? Where did that come from? Because you can't just be passionate and not work hard. Equally, you can't just work hard without a passion because it's just hard work. So where did, where did you get the understanding from of actually what dedication was required to be successful? I think that ethic really came from my mum and dad because um, they didn't come from affluent backgrounds and and you know they both work really hard and you know the one thing that they instilled i've got two brothers a, a younger and an older brother and we're all very different characters but the one thing they instilled in all of us was that you know if you want to achieve something you've got to work hard for it and uh 
yeah, my father was successful in what what he was doing with the business he had. My mum was a a teacher, and then she had other jobs because they, you know she wanted to achieve other things. So, part of it's I think you know nature, and some of it's nurture. Um, but certainly that ethic of if you want something, you've got to go out and 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 earn it and achieve it. There was no sort of pocket money weekly. It was like, oh no, you want to earn some money, you go and go and earn some. You know, wash the cars, and you can get a one pound fifty. I think it was in in those days. But how did you then? sort of reconcile for your parents the fact that this had started as a hobby and then it was something that you wanted to pursue as a career? Um, I was fortunate that my parents were, you know, they were supportive of us following our dreams and they encouraged us always to think, you know, think big, chase your dreams. Never just accept that just being one of a, one of a number. And we're all three very different different characters. My older brother was the academic one and he was got the best school grades and went on to be a be a lawyer my younger brother's a complete hooligan and you know went a different path in 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 life but again equally successful because he had that had that drive and for me school rapidly became a a social thing because all I was thinking about was going racing and of course it was something I could share with my father who had you know he had an amateur's passion for the for the sport he was from the motor industry yeah and, and it was something i could engage you know with him over and as i progressed through my teens and we we're racing in around the uk and it'd be a family thing because we'd all go off to scotland or northumbria or wherever the go-kart track was as a you know as a family and my brothers decided they didn't want to race so some that they'd come and come and support me or do some mechanicing or make the sandwiches or whatever it was and um you know, as I progressed through sort of 15, 16, we started racing in Europe and it was, a, it was just a, a momentum that was building. And then suddenly there's this world of car racing and that was what I, what I wanted to do. And I, I made a deal with my mum and dad because I wanted to leave school at 16 and just go racing. And I said, no, 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 that's completely irresponsible. You've got to do your A-levels mm. and you have to get a place in university. And I had absolutely no intention of going anywhere near university. So, so I stayed on and I did my A-levels. I managed to scrape through with just about enough grades to be able to go to the university if I, if I wanted to. But I was already racing you know, in Formula Renault at that stage. And, and I, I got no intention of going anywhere near a university. One of the things that people that listen to this podcast talk to us often about is that they feel that something's not right for them but they aren't brave enough to make the decision to get rid of that thing. So I'd like to talk to you about the, the moment or the period yeah. where you realised that the dreams of becoming a Formula 1 world champion wasn't going to happen. How did you come to that realisation and how difficult was that? In the end, it was relatively straightforward because what, what happened was you, you, you set off on, a, you know, on, this, on this voyage. So I, moved, I won a scholarship from racing karts. I'd finished in the top three in the in the UK in karting. I then won some races in Formula Renault, which was the gateway into the sport at that time. Then Formula Three and things, you know, and you'd think of being the next Nigel Mansell. And that's where my focus and dreams were at that stage. And but I'd already started to recognise that at Formula Three, the guys I was going up against, they were just quite simply better than I was. I managed to, to bring together a budget because Formula or motor racing unlike other sports, is very dependent on the budgets that you can put together because you have to go and effectively pay for the service to drive for a team. And um, I didn't have enough money to go to a, to a top team, so I made the decision that, well, why don't we buy the car and, you know, at least we've got a car at the end of the year rather than a set of overalls and some pictures and, uh, you know, try and do it ourselves. Yeah. And, um, and so that's, that's I, I taught my father into it well, yeah, that's quite entrepreneurial though isn't it i would i'd had to raise a lot of the sponsorship on my on my own he'd given me you know support with opening the doors and uh to some of his contacts and i basically tapped up every schoolmate's dad or you know who had a local business to to sponsor me in my in my motor racing career and the contacts that my father had and you know i was fortunate in that respect but, it, but i had to go out there and find the, the the sponsorship and so having done that it was then a question of well Rather than waste it with an average team, I may as well set this thing up. And uh, then if it doesn't work, at least I've got something to fall back on. And I, I suppose the defining moment for me was even before the season had started, 
at the beginning of 1998 was when I drove out the pit lane in, in Portugal. And there used to be a really high-speed turn um, that was sort of one downshift straight into the corner. And there's barriers that are about three metres from the edge of the track. So if you're going to have a crash, there, it's going to be a big one. And um, Juan Pablo Montoya came past me as I was coming out of the, of the pit lane into this corner. And I could just see the angle that this car was at, the commitment that he had. You know, the rim is trying to push its way through the tyre. And, and he just kept this thing absolutely planted. And I just knew that. I can't do that. My foot and brain, Interesting. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's something yeah. between them that's saying, don't do it. Um, and I knew, I knew, I just knew that shit, I, I haven't got the ability to disconnect the, the risk versus the, uh, you know, the career the that it had. And yeah. so, you know, yeah. low speed corners is fine. You could be as quick as anybody, the high speed stuff. Whoa. And seeing his commitment there was a was an eye opener to me to think, okay, you're not capable of doing that. Maybe it's time to start thinking about. See, but that else. fascinates me, Christian, because a lot of people would often be that far in a career like you were. If mm. you've you put your neck out on the line, so yeah. you've got the sponsors, you've you, uh, you back yourself by buying the car. Like that hidden cost of time and investment in it is a difficult one to then step away from and maybe take a different angle. I could have gone a different path. I could have gone and raced in America or Japan or pursued other other avenues. But I thought, do you know what? I've I've created this. I've created this team. I've driven for some good teams and driven for some not so good teams. And I'd like to develop this team how I would like to drive for it if I was, you know, from a driver's perspective. And so it gave me a an insight, albeit at a lesser level than anywhere near what our drivers are currently exposed to. But some of the emotions, the pressures, the isolation, the sense of team that, you know, are so, so important. And, and for me, it was an invaluable education. So, you know, when I first started out and created this uh, little what would be now Formula 2 team, I was having to do everything so i was booking hotels i was doing the vat returns i was paying the wages on every uh, you know every friday i was booking the fuel paying for the spare parts borrowing as much money from the bank constantly speaking with them every week about being overdone on the overdraft the credit card was maxed out for paying for tires you know i was washing the truck getting the pizzas in the evening for the mechanics so it was a tremendous education yeah. for me to go through that, just dealing with with people and dealing with the pressures of running a little business. Because at the end of the day, there were uh, two mechanics, a truck driver and an engineer. And those four people depended on me to pay their mortgage. And that was a responsibility even at the age of 26. I mean, that's an amazing grounding in sort of just leading a team and a culture. So what was the biggest lesson you learned in that period of your life that still applies today? It's all about people. It's about working with people. It's about getting them to work together. It's about having the ability to engage with people at any level, whether it's from a sponsor to a truck driver and having that ability to be approachable. Um, and for me, that is something that's always been very important that nobody should feel that they I don't want to talk to him, he's unapproachable, you know, and so on. And uh, and I think when you've walked a mile in some of their shoes as well and done some of the, bought the pizzas and washed the truck and washed wheels and, you know, you've experienced some of what they're having to experience. And so you you know what's what's required. But ultimately, I think just the skill set, and, and that went back to school. I was never the most academic at school. Um, I wasn't the best sportsman either that, and that would give you popularity. And... Uh, you know, I think that's just a life skill, to be honest with you. So in this world that you're in now, which is so engineering heavy, is emotional intelligence one of the biggest skills in your role? Absolutely. And common sense at the end of the day. I'm not an engineer. I've never, I don't have any engineering degrees. I couldn't tell you how the cars are, are built, even less so how an engine is built. Uh, but it's about, it's a people business, as most businesses are. And it's about getting a group of people together empowering them giving them the right direction 
removing the obstacles to allow them and enable them to do their jobs and just focus on their job without being troubled by worrying about what somebody else is doing or you know what another department's doing and i think that that's a skill that maybe you had right at the very beginning because i remember when i worked in formula one and i hadn't i didn't know much about the sport and i was talking to someone about you i was like what, what do i need to know about christian and it, this person said that they spoke with a mechanic that was involved in the Formula 3000 days, mm-hmm. and it was a really bad season. Car was really struggling. You had some sponsors at an event. You stood up and spoke to the sponsors about the race and what's going to happen that weekend. And he said that by the time they all left the room and you left the room, he was the mechanic. He knew you were going to be struggling, but even he was like, oh, I think we're going to win this <laughs> it's weekend. It's going to be all right. <laughs> we're going to be okay. So I'm just really interested to know what skills you've picked up on how you can bring people on the journey with you because it is something that is would be useful for so many people. Well, I think you know, 90% of people just want clarity and, and, and a clear communication. They don't want stuff sugarcoating. They just want to know, you know, what's the situation. Not a lot of people like small talk, you know, and it's about just being clear. And I think that I've always, you know, tried very hard with whoever whatever you know walk of life or or position anybody's in is just to have that that clarity and the approachability and i think that for me that again is something that runs through this team in that there's no room for for egos here you know it's it's all about team it's all about working for each other and and not just for as an individual and and i think that that's made this team it's one of the strengths that it's had is it's it's that sense of team, that sense of collectiveness that, you know, we're all judged every two weeks on a Sunday afternoon and every department needs to be working in harmony to for the car to, to achieve that finish line in first position. So when you came into a team then and you're preaching this message of harmony and teamship first, have there ever been any examples where you've been able to reinforce it through a symbolic gesture or having to deal with a particular conflict that you could share with us? You have to lead by actions. You, you don't demand respect, you earn, you earn it. And I think every situation is, is different. I remember, you know, we had Mark Webber and, and Sebastian Vettel relatively early on in their relationship were starting to get pretty feisty with each other. And you could see this tension was, was building and building. And then we had a you know, a problem where the two of them crashed into each other and it, and that just took it to a whole new level. And I thought, I need to deflate this. I need to put things into perspective here. At the end of the day, you know, we're not saving lives. We're a, we're a sport that's an entertainment. And so I took, I got both drivers and I took them um, with David Coulthard, actually, to Great Ormond Street to meet some of the kids that were having a tough time and also importantly the parents and to spend a morning there with those kids and parents and some of the heartache and you know that that was real life issues and it just demonstrated that okay we've got it pretty good and actually to respect each other is not a, you know it, with the, the challenges that the, the, these poor children and their parents and the anguish that they had what we do is is nothing. Well, after that visit, did you then have a meeting with them to... I didn't need to, you right. know, at that point. They obviously spent time in, you know, during that morning with the kids and the, and the parents and and it was self-explanatory what was, what was going on. And I think after that, we then had a period where there was a, you know, a reasonable, you know, respect between, between the two of them. It boiled over at some points, but when you got competitive animals that's what that's what happens but uh it was a good reminder at that point in time i think of of all the myriad of hats you have to wear when you're the ceo of a team like this you know constantly speaking to red bull about funding mm. tr- constantly trying to keep the sponsors happy yeah. um you've admitted yourself you know you couldn't build an engine yet you've embarked on that and we'll talk about that shortly but you have to go and speak to those people and still empower yeah. them and empower the aerodynamicists and you have then a huge team of people to bring with you and then the constant travel and the media duties and amongst all of that the two people I guess at the centre of the team the two drivers you have to get the balance absolutely right between pushing them to their limits but making them realise that they are driving for a team how do you how do you get that element right I mean I wonder whether that is takes up more of your time than you'd want or not 
Um, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And I think that different drivers need different approaches. I mean, some drivers very straightforward and, uh, you know, you, you bolt them in and they, they deliver. Other need a bit of a arm around the shoulders. Some need a kick up the ass. You know, they're all, they're all very, very different. Um, and the word teammate is a complete fallacy because that's absolutely what they're not because the guy in the other car is basically dictating your, um, your value, you know, that's uh, ultimately your, your career. So, cause that's the only person that you can be truly gauged against. So, um, and I think with experience, it helps having driven a bit helps um, so that you can at least talk in a language and try to relate to some of the problems that they're experiencing. And you, you talked about it as, as kind of being lonely or being quite an isolated role in the team. Can you explain that? Well, no, nobody ever turns around and says, well done, yeah. you know, and I think that it can be a, it can be a lonely position because um, you've got an awful lot of responsibility. Um, it consumes a huge percentage of your, your life. You've got accountability and it's a pressure and you learn to deal with that pressure or you, you know, succumb to it. And I think that it's being able to manage and compartmentalize what's important at what point in time. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by it? I wouldn't say overwhelmed. There's days where you think, you know, there's quite a bit on. But no, I think, look, you know, it's, it's, uh, I remember in the early days, I flew to a hearing with the FIA with Ron Dennis because we were both in trouble for having not taken the start of the US Grand Prix. And uh, he gave me a very useful bit of advice, which always stuck with me, which he said, look, you know, I've always said to any eat an elephant, you've got to do it piece by piece. You know, you're never going to do it in one sitting. You've got to just break it down and, and go one step at a time. And that was, that always stuck with me, not because of the thought of Ron eating an elephant, but um, it was pertinent because I think with experience as well, you learn to worry about the things that you can control and not the things that you can't. You have to let, because you can't control everything. So how different is your management now to when you first walked through the doors here in your early 30s? Because I guess there would have been doubters. There yeah. would have been people in the team that were disillusioned with recent results. You came in with this great promise of turning things around. What did you say? I was 31 years of age when I walked through the front door and, um, you know, I was a kid. Um, as Did you far think as you most were a kid? People. No, at that time, of course I didn't. Um, I'd had success in, you know, I'd won a championship for three years in a row in, in what is the understudy of Formula 1 now, Formula 2, Formula 3000, as it was known in those days. So I'd had an element of success and I walked in and it was just a, just a much, much bigger environment than what I come from. So I thought, I'm just going to stick to all the same basics that served me well to win those championships in, in Formula 2 and apply them in Formula One, and that is about you, you surround yourself with the right people, empower those people, be clear in the objectives and what the expectations are, and try to remove the obstacles so that they can they can do their job. And you know, when I first turned up here, I think there was complete dismay that they put a, some kid in charge. But there was a couple of guys, one that's still on the front end of um, Max's car that had also graduated from. Formula 2 or Formula 3000, that knew me. And they were tremendously supportive at that time. DC, who was our driver, I knew from those years back, go-kart racing, and he was a familiar face. And he was someone that I could bounce ideas off because he'd driven for Williams, he'd driven for McLaren, and he'd come to, to Red Bull. So he was somebody that I said, I don't understand what on earth these guys are talking about, that even the language they're using. And he said, well... Neither do I. And I've just come from McLaren. So I think, okay, we need to break things. Do you remember down. what you said to kind of set the tone straight away under your tenure here? I just... I, I, Did you address yeah, everyone a long at once? Time. Yeah, I, yeah the, whole, the whole factory was pulled together. And it was announced to them that the previous management, because Red Bull had only bought Jaguar at the end of 2004, and this was beginning of January 2005. They were all bought together. And basically, the current team principal had been fired that morning. Um, the company had been brought together and, da-da, this is, uh, you know, 
Christian Horner, he's now going to be the, the, the new team principal. And there was a sort of a look of shock as I looked out at this sea of faces and thinking, who's this kid that they've left me? So I went back to, you know, what was my office? I had a secretary in tears because her previous boss had just been fired. Um, I got his Christmas cards on the desk, his coffee cup half drunk. And it was like, okay, <laughs> so this is the start. Wow. This is the start. And a pretty disgruntled workforce that all went home at five o'clock. I think in protest. So it was then a question, right, okay, I've got to learn about this team, the people, understand its strengths and weaknesses. And, and, and that was really what I set about the next six months doing was just looking, listening, talking to people, getting to know and understand the business. But when you went back into that office and you closed the door and it was just yourself, how did you sort of manage your self-talk to stop the doubts that other people might have had? consuming you i never had those doubts it was like okay this is the starting point get on with it you know and it was a question of i've got to roll my sleeves up i've got to i've got to get stuck in i've got nothing to lose i'm just going to do stick with my values and my trust my own instinct trust my own limited experience that i had at that point in time but that was to try and understand the strengths and weaknesses try and understand the dynamics of the place and just get to know the people because the dynamics are as i understand it christian for you coming in here is different from say some of the others where the owners you mentioned ron dennis or some of those other examples whereas this is managed like you had to manage upwards as well yeah so what was it that you think they saw in you that gave them that confidence that you were going to turn this around well, i think helmut marco i raced against his team in in formula two I, he, he then um, sold his team and he became in charge of the young driver programs for, for, for Red Bull. And they had a really exciting young talent called Vitantonio Liuzzi. And I was desperate to have him as a, as, as a driver in the, in the Arden team. And so typical helmet, I, I did a really aggressive deal. Well, he did a really aggressive deal with me where basically the minimum fee that he would pay was about 50%. So I said, okay, I'll do it for that. But for every Grand Prix we win, I want there to be a 50,000 bonus, which he agreed to. And we won nine out of the 10 races that year. So I think without that, I'd have gone bankrupt. But, um, and he liked that, that spirit and the fact that I got that confidence. I knew him from before that because when I first started this team, I needed a, to buy a trailer. And um, it turned out that this Austrian fellow was selling a trailer. So I went to Graz, saw this trailer, met Helmut. I haven't got a clue who he was. He seemed like a pretty straightforward kind of guy. Agreed a price. And he said he'd deliver it in a week's time, but it had to be money up front. So fair enough. So I went home and I, I borrowed the money from the bank and finance and this and that and the other. I remember my father was away at the time. And I sent basically all the money that I could conjure up to pay for this, for this trailer. My father came back from this trip where he'd been and he said, I said, oh, I bought a trailer. He said, well... Great. Where is it? So it's in Austria. Okay. Well, um, when you know how much and when when are you going to pay for? It? I said, Oh, I've paid for it. It's what you've you've bought a trailer off a bloke in Austria you've just met, and how, how much of the money do you? I said I sent all of it because he would only deliver it if I sent. Uh, and he said, Are you stupid? And I'd suddenly I then thought, Oh my God, you know, he seemed like a straight guy. Blah blah blah. And and the trailer, sure enough, of course it. It, it arrived, but that was my first interaction with Helmut and then obviously racing against him, then getting drivers. And he saw, I think, some qualities in me. He then recommended me to, to Dietrich. And Dietrich has always been tremendously good at giving youth an opportunity. You've seen it with the junior program, with across the football um, academies and all, all the sports and so on that they're in. And he was prepared to take a risk. And, uh, yeah, I was 31 years of age and, and, and basically they gave me the keys and said, get on with it. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have you never had an issue where, or a mindset where the fear dominates? You seem to, you seem to have, it's not an arrogance, it's just a self-confidence that things will be okay. You're, you're an optimist. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm definitely glass half full rather than half empty kind of person. I think you've got to push yourself. You've got to, you you won't get anywhere in life through being conservative. And I've always pushed myself to the limit. And as a result of that, you push the people around you, take them on that, on that journey. And uh, I suppose I've applied that philosophy, you know, in everything that I've, that I've done. I've push myself, push the, the team, you push the boundaries. So how do you hire people where you know once you've offered them the job, they're going to be the kind of people that buy into that philosophy? What's your, what's your secret to recruitment? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, they've got to buy into a culture and they have to, that comes ultimately, that emanates down from the very top. So ultimately from Red Bull into, into us and then, of course, how we run the business, you know, here. So, for example, Adrian was a was a classic one so i set my sights on adrian by spring 2005 as right you know i've been a massive fan of his cars growing up this was this iconic designer nobody believed we would get him yeah. or convince him to come here but and that's where dc was helpful because i said you've driven for adrian what do we need to do yeah um and dc said well it's all about adrian and his wife at the time and i said well let's Take him out for dinner. You look after the wife, and I'll have a chat with uh, have a chat with Adrian. Right. Um, well, DC was always very skilled in in that <laughs> department, um, and uh, you, you know it turned out that we'd grown up uh, in the same part of the UK yeah. and had similarities um, in in outlook. And I think it, th- there was a, a vibe that he got from me. I then took him to Austria to see the world of Red Bull and so on, and and was able to convince him that, look, yeah, there's risk, but the reward will be fantastic. See, I think you can't convince people to do something unless you believe it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's so important that you believe when you have that conversation with Adrian, well, of course we're going to hire him and and of course he's going to be successful. And once Adrian came, then that's the biggest advert to everybody else to say, wow, these people are serious. And to be honest with you, I'm doing exactly the same thing with the powertrain business now is getting the best talent going for the best people and saying, look, yeah, there's a risk. You know, Red Bull, as was famously said by a current seven-time world champion, they're a fizzy drinks company. How can they make a racing car? You know, and the same would apply to an engine, but, you know, we'll do it and we'll do it. We'll do it well and we'll get the best people involved and we'll give them a great environment and it'll be inclusive and, and you know, that breeds... Um, and, and perpetuates throughout a business. And I think it, all the talent that we've brought into the team over the years, and the reason we've had tremendous stability as well is because, you know, it, it, it just uh, it perpetuates throughout, throughout the business. Could I ask you then about motivation of yeah. these high-performing, ambitious people that you're recruiting? So I can imagine in the four title-winning years, motivation comes easy, success yeah. breeds success. How do you maintain it when you're not winning titles? Well, that's that's the tough bit. That's actually probably been the toughest part, I would say, of the last 17 years. Because, you know, we first five years were all about building and then we started winning and we won everything for four years, even though two of those years went down to the, to the wire. And then 2014 comes along. There's a big change in regulations. The engines changed, you know, significantly in configuration suddenly we're second best, but we're not just second best. We're second best by miles. 
And everybody's been used to winning. Everybody's been used to going to races. And, you know, if we're not winning, we're competing for the win. And suddenly we're, we're nowhere. And you could feel the energy dipping. And, of course, then people become a little bit disgruntled and you become easy to be picked off by some of your, your, your competitors. So that period was all about retaining, you know, the belief that, you know, we'll get this sorted out. How did you do that? It was about, again, just talking with people, getting them together, talking it through, saying, right, what do we need to do to get this this sorted? There are no short-term fixes. And step by step, you know, we've built, and, and it's taken a while. It's taken five years to get ourselves back into a championship contending position. But when I look around, the senior people, there's 75% of those are the ones that were there in 2013. And how did you manage your own doubts or concerns during that period then? As an eternal optimist. Yeah, I think that the fear of failure pushes you on and, you know, having achieved that success, you just want to, you want to, it becomes almost like a drug that, you know, we've got to get back to that. We've got to get back to that situation of winning. And it becomes addictive in, in many respects. And, I think that you know if it if it doesn't hurt when you lose, then you're not in the right position or in the right role or the right job. And I think it it really hurts if we don't win a race. And I think you want to get back to that feeling of. But the nature of an addiction sometimes leads people to take shortcuts to get that that hit, that adrenaline rush. And yet you're describing that you're almost having to preach patience that this is a process yeah. that you're building towards. So how do you manage that dichotomy? Well, there's always there's always a path to getting back and you've just got to look at that path and say, okay, what do we need to achieve along that journey? And we had a very clear area that was our Achilles heel, which was you know, our engine wasn't as powerful as our competitors. So, okay, how can we push our engine supplier? So we, we tried every possible tactic to push, motivate them into a more competitive position. And we were able to win races and we could grab opportunities, um, but we couldn't put a sustained uh, campaign together. So then it came about, okay, we need to take a risk. We've got to get out of this rut. We've got to do something. Just doing the same thing is, we're just repeating the same mistake. So let's do something different. Let's go with Honda. You know, Honda had been a disaster with McLaren. McLaren had ditched Honda. They'd walked away from them. Honda were on the verge of leading the sport, but we saw the same passion and desire in them and on top of that resource and thought okay let's give this a go let's see if we can make it work and I think out of 40 something races we've been on the podium and over half of those Grand Prix so far and won six Grand Prix and currently fighting you know for a world championship. Can you share with us how you tried to motivate Renault when things weren't going well and how you also managed that message to the rest, the rest of the team here because we have lots of business leaders that listen to this and they can control their own environment as much as they like, which you can do here, but you can't control the environment at an external supplier. And, you know, in the car, it's such a big part of the car. Yeah, that was very difficult because, you know, we were a customer. Yeah. Um, and again, I must have gone to Paris three or four times to sit down with Carlos Ghosn, the, the chairman mm. of the time, to say, look, if you're in this business and want to, you're spending a hell of a money, but you might need to spend just a little bit more and a little bit more wisely. Otherwise, you're wasting what you're, mm. you know, you're currently spending. And you're not getting the return from that. But his heart was never in Formula One. It was just a marketing thing that ticked, ticked the box. That passion and drive, and you were never going. If he didn't have it, how could you expect that to flow through his? His organization, their current CEO is full of passion. Yeah. And that will drive ultimately, you know, performance and results because it emanates from the, from, from the very top. And did you find that that period dulled your motivation or did it do the opposite? No, I think it enhances it in some respects because you're using, okay, we've got to get back into a winning position. And then we had an agreement with Mercedes and then that got reneged on. We had, you know, you try, you try and get yourself back into a competitive position. And then Honda, again, there was a large amount of risk associated with it, but the upside looked fantastic if we could make it work. And, you know, we're, we're in that process. And, and then they've announced 
they're going to stop. And suddenly we've experienced this new world of working with a partner and being integrated rather than just as a customer-supplier relationship. How can we go back to being a customer-supplier? So then we, there's this huge dilemma. What do we do going forward? And that's why the decision was taken, okay, let's take control of our own destiny. And, and I have to say hats off to, to Dietrich Malaschitz and Red Bull for, for, for going for it because you know, there's no guarantees. It's not the cheapest of routes either. But it's one to say, okay, let's make it work. So within reason, obviously, are you the kind of person that believes that anything is possible? Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here. You know, it's as, sim it's as simple as that. If you put your mind to it, you can achieve anything. And who do you turn to then to help you formulate those beliefs? Because like the example you used about Montoya taking that bend and you realizing that's outside of my range of skills, who sort of is your sounding board now to sometimes rein you back in to be your equivalent of Montoya to say, Christian, I think that's not quite within um, your I think brain. you need honest people around you. So, you know, your core team, they can be honest with you. Of course, you know, my wife, you know, she can be brutal. Uh, is it helpful though to get advice from people outside the world or for Yeah, definitely, sometimes? definitely. And I think that advice is perhaps sometimes not too much stronger. I've, I've learned a, a lot from watching Dietrich, how he runs the business. What big lessons have you taken uh, from him? Just the way he empowers people, the enthusiasm that he infects within a business. So I think he's been a, a tremendous example of how to get the best out of people, how to create a culture. And then it's always interesting to look at other sports, how people, uh, you know, operate. I'm, I'm not on big table banger, you know, I'd rather sit down and have a discussion that was logical and thought out than shouting and screaming because I'd, I'd never feel that really achieves anything. But it's always fascinating to look at other industries, other sports, how, how people deal with that, you know, their, their, their own issues. You said, like, your wife's good at giving you brutal feedback. What, what's the best piece of feedback you've had that you've taken on board and you've seen the best result from it? She, she's, she's got a saying, she's got a few sayings, but she's, um, she's always got a saying, she'd always be aware that, you know, a pat on the back is six inches from a kick out the arse. And that's absolutely true, particularly within, you know, a media world that we, that we live in. People love to build you up and they love even more to knock you down. And I think the biggest lesson with that is just ignore it. Just do your own thing. And people will judge you for, you know, you can't control what people think of you. People will have an opinion. They either like you or they don't. That's, that's their prerogative. And I think that um, just learning to let go of that, learning to let go of wanting to be liked, I think, is a very empowering and when, thing. And when did you learn to let go of it? I think probably we'd had the success and then suddenly you have that downward spiral. And probably at that point, because obviously then there's, are the team up to it? Is Christian up to it? Blah, blah, blah. You just got to let it go. You got to believe in yourself and do the best you can. You'll be judged on that at the end of the day. Can I talk to you about, um, the, you've mentioned quite a few times empowering the people that work at Red Bull. Yeah. Sounds great. How do you do it? I've always believed in employing people to do the job and let them do the job rather than telling them then how to do the job. Otherwise, you may as well do it yourself. So again, I think you have to build an environment around them that enables them to focus on what they're, what they're good at. I mean, it's like Adrian. Adrian is an artist. There's no point Adrian managing a bunch of people because it'd be chaos. And it, you know, he, he would be the first to accept that. But you want to give him the freedom as an artist to be creative. And I think that's why he's been here probably at least twice as long as any other team, you know, in the sport. And I think it's, it's having that feeling, you know, feeling of empowerment and allowing them to do their job without micromanagement. Yeah, everybody's accountable, everybody's answerable at some point in time, but it's a question of look, you're here to do be an aerodynamicist or a mechanical designer or a mechanic or a whatever function it is. You know what's expected over to you. So how would you describe the culture then that you want to create? What would be your ideal culture? Well, culture you know, very much is one that is totally apolitical, that is not, there's no finger pointing. And it's about very much team. Everything we do is very much about, you know, the team and it's inclusive 
it's not being afraid to make mistakes. You know, people make mistakes. We're human beings. We all make mistakes. The most important thing is to learn from those mistakes and apply those learnings and findings to try and avoid them, yeah. you know, in, in the future. You don't want just a bunch of sheep. You want people to have a voice, to be able to speak their mind, to get across, you know, their concerns um, or their contribution. And I think it's that kind of environment. Communication is so, so important. I was going to ask, because how do you nurture that? Because there's lots of people that listen to this that understand around psychological safety, being able to make a mistake and not have it held against them forever as long as they learn from it and to feel empowered to speak up. How do you, as the leader of that culture, create that environment for those things to, to blossom and I think it's one of inclusiveness and I think that what's been interesting over the last 12 months is we've all had to exist in a zoom environment or FaceTime or what you know uh, and you lose that empathy of you know meetings go on forever people have got other stuff going on whilst the meeting's going on and yes the technology enables you to continue to function but you lose that interaction and that's why I think it's so vital that you're able to look somebody in the face. You're able to have that personal interaction. And it's those things that make make the difference to be able to have a couple of engineers have a coffee together and talk about the performance of the car and that you're not constantly forcing it. Yeah. You know, it's happening naturally. And what are you like with being vulnerable and admitting you made a mistake? I think you have to be not be afraid to stick your hand up and say, okay, we got that wrong. You know, I got it wrong. I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. But I try and get things, more things right than I get wrong. And if I get something wrong, don't be afraid to learn from it. You know, to say, okay, you know, I got, I got it wrong. But not be afraid to change direction and say, okay, well, okay we're going to go this way now. So a race weekend on a Sunday and there's a mistake that costs a, a win or a podium or a points finish. How quickly have you moved on from that at the start of the next week? Usually within 24 hours, right. 36 hours. You've lost that fear. It still hurts, but you, you sleep the second night. And it's a matter of understanding, okay, what could we have done better? You know, what could we have done better? I mean, we just lost a race to Lewis. All the media think it's down to the strategy. The reality was they were just quicker than us. There's no point beating yourself up about the strategy. The reality is we just need a faster car. Mm. And then you get the strategic options. So again, it's focusing on the things that are the reality rather than the fiction. And as somebody that's been in your position for now a long period of time, like there's something exceptional about it, exceptional leaders. You think of someone from a different sport like Alex Ferguson that mm -hmm. did it for a long time and they talk about that reinvention of themselves. Yeah. What would you say has been the biggest reinvention that you've been through so far in your, in your time as? I think it's a consistent evolution rather than a reinvention. So I'm probably very different now to the day that I walked in, in in many respects, but I think fundamentally I'm still the same person underneath. Yeah. You know, I've got the same characteristics, the same principles. I just think you learn to apply them differently and you learn to understand what's important at the end of the day and what is just noise. So what would you say if somebody was observing you from that first day you came in at 31 years of age to observing you today, what would they see as being the biggest difference? I think they think you'd aged a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, what would they see as the biggest difference? You'd have to ask them that really. I mean, I think it's, it's all about evolution, isn't it? And, and you're constantly learning in life, in, in business, through being a parent, just the journey that life gives you, you're always learning, you're always evolving and, and you shouldn't be afraid to, you know, you go embrace change, not be afraid of change, you know, at the end of the day. So what lesson would you have taken from the journey you've been on that you pass on to your children now then? I think to not be afraid of chasing your dreams, to not be afraid of shooting for the stars because you might land on the moon. You get one life and you've got to go for it. We're here for such a small percentage of time. Don't waste it. Go for it. You know, you whatever it is, whatever gives you a passion in life, chase it and don't wait because it might not, you know, it might not never get, ever get the chance again. So you know, you've got to grab it, embrace it and 
pick it up and run and, and, and enjoy it. That's the other thing. I enjoy what I do. I'm just fortunate I get paid for something that I enjoy doing. And I think if you're doing something just for the money, that's not right. That's, that's, you, you're never going to get the best out of something if it's just about the paycheck at the end of the month. You've got to love what you do. You've got to enjoy what you do. And then if you do that, you're going to do it a lot better. We've reached our quick fire round at the very end of the interview. Um, three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people that come into Red Bull and work around you have to buy into. I'd say integrity, mm -hmm. honesty and competitiveness. Uh, probably three fundamentals. And what advice would you give to a teenage Christian just starting out? Probably say, yeah, don't pay the full amount of money up front for the trailer. <laughs> Put down a deposit and wait for delivery. <laughs> um, thank God it worked out all right. Uh, one book recommendation that you have really learned a lot from that you could recommend to our audience? I don't know. I always like, you know, I find biography is quite interesting and so again learn just learning how people operate whether it's an Alex Ferguson I've always been a he's a very different character I am but I've always admired what he achieved and how he achieved it and finally Christian what's your one golden rule to live a high performance life it's just got to be take each day as it comes you know don't think too far ahead and and just you know take take whatever life throws at you each one day at a time Listen, thank you so much. It's, it's so interesting for me to sit and go through, you know, the, the way that you've built this team. Because I remember coming into Formula One and seeing all these identical Formula One teams that would just turn up, have a table for their sponsors, race and go home again. And then there was suddenly this other team who were jumping off barges and having parties and inviting hundreds of people back to the house of the team principal for a party on the night before or the night after the British Grand Prix. And I remember looking at it thinking... How can you have that much fun and be that successful? Because this was in the era yeah, where yeah. you were winning, you know, four titles on the bounce. So it's such a pleasure to kind of put a bit of meat on the bones. And I guess from afar, we all make up what we think is happening somewhere. And then it's nice to finally get some answers to that. Because um, for me, it was a great lesson that you can actually be successful and enjoy life at the same time. I think for too long, I always thought you could either have one or the other. No, I think, as I say, Life is so short, you've got to enjoy it. And you've got to enjoy the ups, you've got to learn from the downs. And, and that, you know, the bad days make the good days even better. Damien. Jake. You know what I think is, uh, is really interesting about that conversation with Christian is that right from the very beginning, he's someone that doesn't talk about doubt or fear of failure. He talks about believing that he could do something. And I think it can be a bit trite sometimes just to say to people, well, just believe anything is possible and see where it leads to. But this guy is the CEO of one of the most successful Formula One teams in the world. And I think a big reason for that is, is basically because he believed he could be. Yeah, definitely. I think I used a phrase with him quite early on when I spoke about that burn the boats philosophy. And it comes from a story about a Spanish explorer that when they went to Mexico, it was the new world and, and his troops were complaining about where they'd landed. And um, he sent one of his uh, lieutenants back to burn the boats. So it was the idea that we can't go back now. We've just got to go forward and make the best of it. And that struck me as very much part of Christian's philosophy of just commit to something and then find out a way of making it happen. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, he grew up watching Formula One, right, in an era where the team, it was all about the ego of the team owner, who was also the team principal, like an Eddie Jordan, a Flavio Briatore, that sort of a character. Yet when you sit here and speak to him, and you say, you know, what's the key to the success at Red Bull? It's never about him, is it? It's always about empowering the people, delegating the first thing he says is, well, I know nothing about aerodynamics. I know nothing about engines. Well, that's actually not true because he admitted he slept in a bedroom with an engine as a young yeah. kid. So he knows an awful lot more than you or I. But he would never make this team about him. And I think that is a, that's a really important leadership lesson for anyone listening to this. Humility comes through again. And for all the great leaders we've been lucky enough to speak to, Jake, that humility lies at the heart of it, not thinking less of themselves, just thinking of themselves less giving engineers that, that podium to believe that their, their view is just as important as anybody else. And I think that lies at the heart of the culture that we're visiting today. And he says he gives himself, you know, 24 hours to be annoyed about a bad result or something like that. And I guess that's time to process it and work out what went wrong. 
Is there a finite amount of time or a period of time that is recommended for people to dwell on the bad stuff? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it, it, it's always contextual. So you speak to a golfer, for example, they give themselves that 10 yards between missing the shot and, work, and walking to the next hole. For some of us, like it might be you give yourself a week to reflect on it if you're on that time scale. But I think the faster you can process it and move on from the emotion of it to then start planning, how do we do this better? You know, it's that old saying that a mistake is not a mistake until you repeat it. And I think that in Formula One especially, it's about refining your methods and getting better week after week. Interesting. You know, normally you have these conversations and you finish by thinking, well, you know, enjoy this because you're sort of at the pinnacle of your life and whatever comes after this won't be as exciting. But when you speak to someone who, in a really self-deprecating way, believes that anything is possible. I, I wonder whether after this, there's something even more grand and exciting and huge that sort of lies in wait for him. Yeah, definitely. You think about the, like the, the Red Bull empire, you know, we think about the variety of different sports. I think that he's, Christian is somebody that could go and take the skill set that he's deploying here in Formula One and go and make another business equally successful. When we interviewed Christian Horner, Damien didn't have a sore throat and now he does have a sore throat. <laughs> Are you feeling all right, mate? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I think we like a bad penny, Jake. We keep turning up, so uh, it's brilliant to be back. It is, absolutely. Do you know what's been interesting, though? While we've been gone, people have still been sharing their thoughts about the podcast and the way that it's, it's impacted them. And there was one that came in here from Jubsy07, who left us a review on Apple Podcasts. And by the way, guys, if you can rate and review Wherever you get your podcasts, it makes a huge difference to us. Jubsy says, this pod has changed my entire way of thinking. It's helped me achieve my best 5K time ever uh, with my new outlook and helped me approach things in a very different way. My friends must get bored of me plugging it and trying to encourage them to listen. I've got my 15-year-old son who lacks confidence to listen to it. And he then writes down his favorite three things and is keeping a journal to help him track what he wants to take from it. I love this message. Um, He's really enjoying it and I'm seeing glimpses of extra confidence. So thank you. This is the best podcast I've ever listened to. Um, But I just want to pull Jubsy up on a couple of things there, Damien. Um, This podcast has not helped him achieve his best ever 5K time and it has not changed their outlook or helped them approach things in a different way. They have done that. They have improved their time, changed their outlook and they have decided to view things in a different way. Absolutely. It can only be done by the individual. And I think that's a really powerful point. It's a real honour that they think that some of the messages from this podcast have been able to help them, but ultimately it's about what they do with it. It's like having money in the bank. It doesn't mean anything unless you invest it or do something useful. So see this as money in the bank, but what you do with it is down to you as individuals. Digit Digit um, left us a five-star review saying, this is a lifesaver. Um, And I'll just read out one part of their message. The standout theme from the podcast is the focus on the people element, which means you can always learn something new in each episode and it can be applied to your life in general rather than a profession alone. And I think we often get people asking us how we kind of create the podcast, what goes on behind the scenes. And I think the important thing to explain, Damien, is that, you know, in this series, we're going to be joined by some amazing people that have done and achieved amazing things. And our listeners might not be astronauts and multi-millionaire business leaders and team bosses of Formula One teams or footballers who've won Champions League medals and Premier League medals. But it doesn't matter because all of those things are just human endeavours, human achievements, and we can all learn something from each other. This is not a podcast about a career or a life or a business or even an individual, is it? It's about something that we can all control, which is our mindset and our behaviours. Yep, it's about doing the best you can with what you've got in the moment you're in. And I think what we're trying to do is add knowledge and information that can help you do precisely that. It's not about telling people what careers to do or giving them advice about decisions that they need to make. It's about giving them information that can help inform the decisions that they are going to take away and implement. And have you got any messages, Damien? Yeah, I've got a really nice one that I wanted to read out from um, Gareth, who got in touch with me. Gareth, has, uh, three weeks ago, is in his words, he was diagnosed with lymphoma, which was a real shock because he's been fit and healthy for a long time. But he said that listening to the podcast on his daily walks has been a source of inspiration. He said, I love hearing your guests speak at length about the, how they face and overcome challenges and the power of a positive mindset. He said, the stories that you're sharing will help me face what's, what's going to come in the weeks and months of treatment and recovery ahead. 
So I think from our point of view, I want to both thank Gareth for sharing that feedback, but to wish him the very best of luck as well in terms of his own treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Gareth, all of us on the High Performance Podcast send our, our love and our best wishes to you. And uh, thank you so much for listening and for sharing your story as well. Um, there's a nice message here from Callum. And um, what I love about this, he says, I'm a listener from day one. I've always found the podcast inspiring. And then he, he goes on to say, during lockdown, an opportunity came my way to start my own business. And it was a fitness studio. It's something I've always been scared to do because I have to step out of my comfort zone. But the inspiration I've taken from the pod, all the guests and your inputs has led me to go all in. Love that. That was a Stephen Gerrard quote. All in on the project. As a result, I've never been happier or more excited as I'm now only a couple of weeks from opening and following the dream I've always had. I'm well aware there are thousands of startups and most will fail. But what if I don't? What if I apply high performance principles to every aspect of my business and my life? Well, we shall find out. Follow Callum's story. It's at Condition Studio. And I, you know, who knows? What we're not saying on this podcast, are we, Damien, that the stories and the messages and the conversations are guaranteed to change your life, but they're a hell of a lot more likely to if you listen to people who've been there and done it. What is there to lose from listening to other people and learning? Well, again, like we say, if it's if each of our guests has contributed 20 years worth of hard-won experience and they're passing on the the diamonds that they found on that journey and giving it to us to do something with, you'd have to be foolish to pass up some of those learnings and think about how you can apply them in your own life. And it sounds like Callum and thousands of other listeners every week are coming with us on this journey and, and applying it to their own world. And thank you for coming on the journey, Damien. Here we go then. This is it. Series five. Your sore throat will soon go. You'll soon feel fit as a fiddle. And uh, we've got some great episodes on the way, haven't we? Yeah, I can't wait. I think it's so rich and diverse. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to do. If people can have half as much fun as we've had in recording it, uh, I think they'll be in for a treat. Good man. Right. Go and get yourself a cup of tea. Um, And while Damien does that, massive thanks to Tom Griffin for recording the episode with Christian Horner. Huge thanks to Finn Ryan for his hard work as always on the podcast, to Will and to Hannah and to Damien, of course. But most of all, to all of you at home for talking about, for sharing and for being part of the High Performance Podcast. Let me just remind you one more time, we've launched the High Performance Circle. So if you want to access high performance content that you're not getting anywhere else, any time of the day, then just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, enter your email address and get your invite to the High Performance Circle. And best of all, it's completely free. Welcome back. So good to have started Series 5. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.